Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc. And here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And in today's episode, we do part two of an interview we started last week with Catherine Favre on the Enneagram and Transformation. In part one, we focused on tritype, which is a major innovation that Catherine has brought forth into the modern world, a major innovation for the application of the Enneagram, and I encourage you to listen to part one of the interview if you haven't already. In today's episode, in part two, we focus on the Enneagram and transformation again, but this time we focus on its application to working with the human instincts, particularly the instincts of survival, sexuality and intimacy, and group belonging. Many spiritual traditions and psychologies over thousands of years have developed theories and ways of working with the human instincts because it's a fact of human life. And I think the Enneagram provides a particularly powerful approach to confronting our instincts, looking at them objectively, and helping us to transmute and transform them so that they become integrated and part of a fuller synthesis of what a human being could possibly be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerful conversation with myself and Catherine Favre. Welcome, friends. Dr. David here, the Cutting Edge Doc, and welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, where we do in-depth interviews with people doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. Today's show is actually a part two show. It's part two of an interview with Catherine Favre. We did part one a while back, and uh, we got into a really fascinating discussion of the Enneagram in general as a tool for transformation and particularly uh, into discussing an innovation that Catherine has brought to the modern world called tritype, which is a way of working with the Enneagram, which many people, including myself, have found incredibly valuable for gaining a richer, fuller, more holographic benefit from the Enneagram. And uh, the first interview was so jam-packed with information that I thought if we just continued on into another major topic, it would be too overwhelming and too content-dense for you to really get the benefit. So I asked Catherine if she'd be willing to come back for part two, and she graciously agreed. And so here we are. So let me bring Catherine back into the conversation. So Catherine, welcome back for part two. Hi, David. It's good to be back. Okay. And I would just direct people to uh, the first interview for a detailed bio of Catherine. And so we're just going to get right in 
to the conversation here. So in the first interview, we went in depth into what the Enneagram is and what tri-type is, but just so that we're all a little bit on the same page, can you give kind of like a Reader's Digest quick blurb on at least a definition of what the Enneagram is and the types and tri-type, and then we'll move into the main topic for today, which is to take a look at the instincts and how that influences human behavior and how we can work with that to help human beings. Sure. Well, beginning with the Enneagram, let's go back a little and just talk about our personalities. And in the human condition, we all have a unique personality that includes several factors. And the Enneagram is a part of that. The Enneagram addresses not what we do, but why we do it. And then what we're going to get into later is the instincts, and that's more the primal side. So we have our kind of instinctual self. We have our our ego. And then we also have our higher, more uh, essential qualities, our spiritual nature. The Enneagram itself is a sophisticated, yet pretty easily understood personality typology that identifies nine distinct personality types, each with their own view of reality, inner motivations, and sense of integrity. And then the instincts themselves are three variations that we will run our Enneagram type. And then the tri-type is the three types that we use in a preferred order. And there's one dominant type in each center um, of attention. So, for example, you are the four, as we talked about in the first um, session. And then you have the one and the seven in your tri-type. So you lead with type four, but you also use the gifts and and have the struggles of the other two types in your tri-type. One way to look at it is we have the self-image and the core fears of those three types. But we also have the self-image and the core fear of the instinct. So with regards to the Enneagram type, these nine types give us nine different self-concepts or self-images with corresponding core fears. So for example, as the 417, you would have the self-image in, in your idealized state of being unique, special, aesthetic, and tasteful. But w- along with that, you would struggle with the fear of being inadequate, emotionally cut off, defective, or flawed. But in addition to that lead type, your 7 has an idealized image of being happy, optimistic, fun, enthusiastic and playful and a visionary and the corresponding fears for the seven are are being incomplete inferior limited trapped and or missing out and then your type one has an idealized image of being good right in control and appropriate with corresponding fears of being wrong bad evil or corruptible now When those merge, like we talked about in the first session, you get 
a whole new focus as to what those three types in your tri-type share in common. And all three of those types together are idealistic in their own way. So it makes you particularly idealistic and wanting to do something that would create almost an ideal world, a utopia. And you would have the vision from the seven, you'd have the structure from the one, and you'd have the unique perspective with sense of aesthetics from the four. But now we have to look at how you would do this in terms of the instincts. Where do you want me to begin with that? Do you want me to do a little breakout of the instincts first? Why don't we discuss what the three major instincts are and give people a sense of that, and then, and then we can continue to use me as the guinea pig. Okay. Great. Well, in the context of the Enneagram, as I mentioned, there are these three instinct, instinctual drives that govern the more primitive and primal strategies for survival. So they're known as self-preservation, which is the focus on the body and what the body needs to survive, what we need to feel safe and secure and have a sense of well-being. And then social, which is the drive to seek others, to belong, to be a part of a group or community or the family of man. And then sexual or one-to-one, -one, which is the drive to seek personal affinity, closeness, and intimate relationships. And it's also where we seek the divine. And we all do all, all three of these instincts throughout the day, but one tends to be dominant. One's in charge of the others. Just as with our tri-type, there was one type that's dominant. Well, with our instincts, the same is true. But if, if you look at the instincts, they reveal the most unconscious aspects of our personalities. And they relate to the three domains of life. How we take care of ourselves is the self-preservation. How we relate to others is the social instinct. And how we create and form personal attachments or bonds, which is the sexual one-to-one. -one. Now, what's interesting is we always want security that comes from feeling physically safe, which is the self-preservation. We all want to belong to a group to feel safe. It's like safety in numbers. And we all want intimate bonds. However, the way that we create that security depends on which of these three drives is the preferred strategy. And it's always the most dominant and influential in our lives. So there are certain times throughout our lives when it's natural to seek security, or if we're not feeling well, we tend to our body. If we feel lonely, we might want to call friends and do something, or if we need to talk about something really personal with a very close friend, then we'll seek out someone we have that level of intimacy with. So the question is, what do we do the most? What's our default? So if we're not ill, but we're constantly monitoring what our body needs, like, am I tired? Am I hungry? Do I have enough money? Do I have uh, the resources that I need to feel safe and secure? 
then it's a habitual pattern of tracking the resources in our lives. Then that would be more dominantly someone leading with self-preservation because the search is for survival. So there's a constant perceived need to have more essentials. The focus is on the self and our personal world, not the world we have with others, like the social instinct or our intimate world with our beloved or our best friend, but the world of our own making, that our, our sense of well-being, the desire is to have enough food, shelter, clothing, time, energy, money, and resources, as well as the protection that we need. Whatever we perceive we need to feel safe. And the fear is of not surviving. So therefore, we, we worry about anything that's suspenseful, like the unknowns of life, a fear of poverty, illness, anything that would endanger the body, any sense of loss or annihilation. So if you compare that to the social instinct, the need is for uh, community. Now, a lot of times people will say, oh, I don't really need um, to be social. But so many things are already provided for, uh, for in terms of the social world. Like we have fire departments. We have um, support systems in place that our, our country happens to offer. And we have to consider what if we didn't have that? What if there was no fire department or emergency services or police department? We would need to band together with others to have more security and to be safe in the world. So the main search is for community and for others. And you can be social or antisocial, but you're focused on others and our greater world. Who is doing what with whom? And the desire is to have others that you feel safe with to have social acceptance. Your focus is on people. You want recognition, popularity, honor, status. You don't want to be cast out. The fears of being uh, lonely, of not belonging, of having a low rank where you won't be taken seriously. Uh, it's fears of failing in the eyes of others, um, being inferior, and most importantly, isolated, alone, without support. And the sexual instinct is about you and me, that intimate dyad of you and me. The search is for intimacy. And it isn't just um, closeness. It's a willingness to reveal the self with someone else who also reveals. So it's saying everything about yourself, being close. And the more you share, the closer you become. And it's equal. It's not just one-sided. It goes both ways. It's about pair bonding. It's the desire for the mate or the special other. So the term is sexual because it's a biological drive. And pair bonding is a part of that. But it's about affinity. It's, the closeness could be with your best friend or a special child. But it's not with everybody. It's very few people. And you must maintain an intimate bond. And if you're apart from that person, when you see them again, you don't have to become comfortable with each other again. You just take off right where you left off. 
and it's just like an ease with being with each other. And it's about the other half. It's about needing to be attractive. It's you dress to be attractive. You pay attention to your appearance. It, because if your survival is based on how attractive you are to your designated other, the person you want to attract, then you must be appealing. And that's why the fear is of undesirability, unworthiness, uh, disconnection, feeling incomplete, uh, having a loss of appeal, invalidation. So if you look at it in terms of these three distinct needs, the self-pres in a nutshell is focused on survival through tending to the body and resources, the essentials of life. The social uh, focuses on survival in terms of what they are tracking about others. So either they're joining others or are wary of others. But either way, they're looking for social acceptance and a way to have uh, security through uh, some sort of recognition. And then the, the sexual, in a nutshell, is about having this desirable appearance for the person that they want to be close to. And that appearance generally is how we dress and, and look, but it also has to do with kind of a charismatic quality to the, to the personality. Does that give you a, a beginning? Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my sense of myself is that the order for me would be sexual, self-preservation, and then social. Mm-hmm. But the... But it's not so much the appearance part. It's more, for me, it's more the deep connection part. Yes, it gets very interesting when we consider that four wants a deep connection as well. So the, the sexual subtype of four wants a really deep connection. You know who you are based on the person that you are the most bonded to. Yeah, the way that I sort of uh, worked with this was imagining uh, if if which of those three, if they were in really bad shape, would throw me for the worst loop. That's sort of the way that I thought of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, and, and that's kind of how I got to it. Was you know, if if uh, if I'm out of affinity with the people that are really close to me, it's, it really, really bothers me more than even uh, than even issues with the self-pres and the social. And, uh, you know, I think that's one way to get at it. But I did think about the fact that I'm curious about this relationship between the Enneagram and the instincts, because I would imagine that there is a a sexual aspect that's highlighted to most fours. And so I'm not quite sure yet of the relationship between the Enneagram types and the instincts. And maybe you can get into that. And also I'm interested in uh, having you talk about how I would work with that. And also you talked about in the past, I've heard you say that in some ways the instincts are even more influential in terms of their impact of human behavior than even our eneotype, enneagram type or our tri-type. And so these are things I'd be interested in uh, exploring with you. And I, I'm willing to 
to be a guinea pig here. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, look at it this way. The, our instinct is powerfully protective. It's like the gargoyle on the building. It just serves its master. It's not good or bad. The, if our instinctual need is unmet, we feel anxious and unsafe, regardless which one is dominant. The dominant instinct is like a lighthouse that's constantly searching for solutions to life's problems. It's always on alert. It's always tracking whether or not its needs are met. And the, the key thing is that this gargoyle part is ferocious in a way, but it's not, there's no malice to it. It's not meant to hurt others or be obsessed. It's just doing the bidding to keep the organism alive and well and the ego functioning. So think of the, the ego as having this component that if we weren't in the human condition, we wouldn't need it. But it's always tracking what is essential. So at its best, when we are, excuse me, <clears throat> When we are focused on self-preservation, we can imagine a beautiful scenery of a gorgeous sunset, and we feel inner harmony. That's self-pres at its best. Self-pres struggling is more like the crocodile that just, you know, eats whatever it needs to to survive. The... Um, the self-pres is also about calculating and money and resources and having enough and the fears of being a burden. Whereas the social, it's like the herd instinct. It's like, how do we mix with others? How do we relate? How do we fit in? What's the hierarchy? Who's in charge? What role do I need to have? And think of all the uh, ribbons that have been created for all the different cancers. I mean, they're in all colors now. And they represent different things, like blue is prostate cancer, pink is breast cancer, um, you know, green is lymphoma. That's a social function, delineating. And as I said, the fire department, the police department, all our, um, all our governmental elements are all social. So when we relax as a social is when we know our place, we know that things are being tended to, that there is an order. Whereas if we imagine instead a serene setting where we're connected, deeply connected to ourselves, to um, someone we love, or the divine beloved, then we feel at ease and relaxed. That's the high side. Whereas the low side of the sexual instinct is that we can be the peacock without the substance. We can be so identified with showing our feathers that we don't develop our inner core or we're fighting for dominance. You know, the sexual instinct is very possessive and wants this union, fusion, totally merged state. Whereas the social, as I mentioned, the high side is knowing what role you have the low side is kind of attacking society or others or different viewpoints or prejudices. 
So each serves a, a very important role. So now in terms of with you, it, it's a little more complicated because the four has a need for connection, connection to source, and the sexual has a need for connection. But it is about desirability. And I loved your example where you said it's like what, in essence, keeps you up at night. Someone that's self-prez will be distressed if they don't have the resources that they're concerned about. If they misplace a check or they're uncertain about funds, they will feel anxious, even though they know it will potentially work out. But it'll keep them awake at night. Whereas the social will be awake at night if they feel they've lost some sort of status in a group that's important to them or in a community. And sometimes people will say, oh, well, I'm, I don't really care what other people think of me. But they do care about their title or their, their rank, even if they don't think they care. They might care if they consider the fact that it's very important to have the right title. So with the four, when you combine the four, the Enneagram type four, with the sexual, you get someone that tends to be competitive and that is motivated when they feel angry about something. So the competition part of the sexual instinct linking with the four need to be viewed as unique and special is unites and creates someone that's going to really manifest that. When we talked about the tri-types last session, we talked about how that union of the two can have someone really focused on manifesting the ideal. Well, the low side, of course, the struggle is that this combination can make someone that's com competitive over everything and motivated by what they hate. So if they feel inadequate and they hate the feeling of be being inadequate, then they will compete to win and they will diminish others. But if we take that same energy and we balance the instincts, it's what allows for the transformational process. That same energy can be used to, um, well, really is a tool for transformation. And in my research, I found that when people consciously brought into focus all three instincts of their respective type and, tr and later tri-type, that they were able to really respond appropriately to the needs of any given situation. Not too much, not too little, not giving to get, not doing something for attention, but just what's called for. But this is rare, of course. And one of the drives is dominant and commands really an undue amount of our attention. And it's the resulting imbalance that distorts our perception and causes problems. Does that make sense? So it's only the distorted use of the drive that interferes with the quality of life and causes unnecessary suffering. So if we look at the four, seven, and one, we have an interesting combination because we have to look at 
these three types in your tri-type in relationship to the instinct and it creates a very special focus. So the four is brings the competitiveness to create something ideal. The seven brings the fascination and the ability to charm others. And the one brings kind of that zeal and that ability to um, persevere and change. Like ones in general are thought of as more structured and perhaps rigid when they're um, stressed. But the high side of the one, and in particular, the sexual instinct in one, is this ability to transform and change, to take an existing structure, see how it's not working, and having the, the willingness and perseverance to change it and reform it into something new. So you would have those three types, one that has this zeal and rivalry and kind of this heat and energy to, to create something new, that's the one. The four, which is your lead type, which is this competition and this ability to see the ideal. And the seven, which is what I mentioned earlier, this fascination and this vision. And then all within the context of interpersonally. So your gift would be your ability to connect with people in a very personal way. Have you found that to be true? Well, I mean, look at what's happening right here. You know, look at look at what I'm doing here with this podcast where we're doing in-depth interviews right. with people That's that, true. with people that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality and social transformation. So it's a I think it's a way to to channel the 471 and the sexual instinctual type in a way that is uh, enjoyable for me and other people and is valuable to the collective. For sure. Uh, it really is. It, you know, this is a fascinating topic for me because, um, you know, spirituality is so important to me. And if you study the history of uh, sort of spiritual paths, one of the things that's very interesting is to look at the way different spiritual traditions deal with the human instincts. And, uh, you know, some deal with uh, them by very rigid disciplines. Others uh, do it by consciously acting them out. Others do it by just observing. And uh, this is really fascinating. And that kind of leads into the next question is, given the insight, that you're helping me to have about this unique sort of uh, aspect of of life that is me, that is this 471 sexual uh, instinctual type. And now let's say I would know that and I would know the potential gifts and blind spots and weaknesses of that particular combination. Um, how would you coach me at this point to to work with them in a way that ends up being of maximum benefit to myself and to all the people that I would contact? Mm, well, the first thing I would do is have you recognize that your instinct 
and your instinctual stacking, the order that you use your instincts, are both a talent and a skill, but it's also the area where we continuously worry and where we have nervous tension. And to see that both are true and recognize the unconscious pattern that's always on guard and constantly mentor, uh, excuse me, monitoring your needs, but to recognize it and honor it. Now, personally, when I coach people, I don't ask them to stop anything. Instead, I prefer to help them recognize the process that they tend to habitually use and then to tag the emotion connected to it. And then, in my experience, the defensive structure calms down. Because like the gargoyle, once you give the brain an answer, like, oh yeah, I know that I should be worried about this emotional disconnection, but it's really okay. This has happened before and we always work things out and we're close again. That's like telling the brain, oh, it's okay. And then the brain calms down. At the same time, I really encourage people to bring the other two into awareness. So in your case, your sexual and your self-pres are very close. But the social is down lower. So bringing the social into consciousness will also help to balance the instincts. So a lot of times people ignore that third instinct, especially when they have two really close, like you do, this, the um, sexual and the self-pres, and we tend to just avoid it. I also have the same pattern, and my social, in a group, I can sometimes miss in person what is needed in any given moment that will make the group um, healthier and whole. And when I do that, my need for personal intimacy drops down and my need for physical security drops down and the three become more aligned. And then the same would be true with you. And then it's not like running on overdrive. So honoring the skill that your instinct um, has to offer and then being aware of the dilemma. So in your case, the word hate, when you hear yourself just casually saying something like, oh, I hate it when people do that, or I hate it when that happens, or I hate that shade of red, anything with the word hate is a clue to you that you're feeling distressed about something. And even though it seems like very casual conversation, it's letting you know that your instincts are a little out of balance and you can bring them back into balance again by saying, okay, what is it I'm actually feeling? What's going on? Why do I hate red or whatever color it was? And it will lead back to some sort of experience pretty I would say with the four, almost within the last 30 minutes and sometimes the last five minutes when something brought up that fear of being inadequate, 
the envy came up and you felt like you weren't enough. And it's unconscious, so you're not aware of it. But you can begin to listen to your language. And if you listen to your language, it will be in the, the clue. And if you start saying something about the way you felt disappointed in someone you're close to or your particular sense of who you are, remember that for this sexual instinct, it's invalidation. So if we have the fear of invalidation of the sexual with the fear of being inadequate of the four, you can see why there's more of a need to create positive intrigue and um, rivalry. Because if you, if you didn't have rivalry, you wouldn't know that you were special. It's a way for you to be certain that you're special, that you're the chosen one. Does that make sense? Yeah, the part that really was like, wow, I hadn't thought of that at all, was the part about uh, honoring more the the instinct that is the least prominent um, and that that can take some pressure off the other two. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of uh, when I was studying one of your early teachers, when I was studying uh, Hurley and Dodson's work. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about the nine types in relation to the head, the heart, and the belly, and to really focus on the underused type aspect uh, in terms of head, heart, and belly, and that that would tend to take a lot of dysfunction out of the whole system. And this sounds like a very similar approach, and it, um, it really sort of slipped in under my radar, and I saw a judgment that I had that um, my relationship with society wasn't as vital as my relationship to uh, my intimates or to my body. And I started to look at that and realize that, you know, that, that, that could be a prejudice that, that may not be as true as I think. And uh, that sort of really snuck in under the radar and that, that's what really struck me about what you said, because I'm already pretty conscious in terms of my own practices and my own disciplines. I'm already pretty conscious about my use of language, and I'm already pretty in tune with my own shifts and energy flows. So that was more of a validation of what I was already assuming. But that other one sort of was like a, like a breaking open, like something I hadn't even considered and it kind of was uh, a little embarrassing to realize that um, I have had that prejudice of discounting the 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 incredible importance of the larger community and society and you know I think the way that I've dealt with that has been to attempt to shift the social water that I swim that that we're swimming in, but I think I've been doing that in a way that hasn't been completely clean because I think I've been in denial about the hurt that I feel about the disconnect that I feel between my flow and society's flow. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. You know, uh, to support that particular experience that you've had, I too have, as I mentioned, social third. And I recently, a couple months ago, was in a group that was only about 20 people, but none of them were um, types that had the sexual instinct leading. And so there wasn't anyone that I quite made that that significant bond with. And the first thing that rose for me is, oh, there won't be as much meaning here because there isn't that special someone to share this experience with. But when I realized what was going on, which I could from my language, I could see what I was saying to myself, that I realized, okay, what's happening here socially? And so I just could use it as an opportunity to bring the social into awareness, to see everyone in the group as a part of my tribe, something I don't do, but socials always do first, and then just see what my experience was. And when I considered myself a part of the tribe and the group dynamics that normally would frustrate me, I could actually really enjoy the high side of the social instinct, which is bringing together, um, sharing of resources, of recognizing and honoring others. Whereas normally I'd be frustrated if there was too much you know, clapping and honoring uh, because it wasn't like as personal. But that's the prejudice that the sexual instinct always struggles with. They want more personal and less social. So when I just could be in the flow of the group, I actually had a wonderful time. But if I hadn't brought that into awareness, I would have been fighting against my desire to be more personal, to be more self-revealing, and to have that oneness. But I could create it with the group. And just in contrast, a couple weeks ago, I was in a group where we had a drumming circle. And it was interesting to have all of us drumming, like literally walking to our own drummer. We all sounded very different. We all had our own drum. And then drumming together and having that unity. And in that moment, the oneness of the group was so magical. And that's what we as sexual subtypes can forget. That there is so much for our least used instinct to become aware of. And when we become aware of it, we're not as wounded and we enjoy our experiences and we're not telling our, our gargoyle isn't saying, come on, come on, there, where's the intimacy, where's the intimacy? So look at it this way. You are having these in-depth conversations and interviews. But who are you doing it for? It's for the social group. So in a way, you are reaching your social group by sharing something intimate. That's the high side. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm very aware that um, I have this passion to do these in-depth interviews with people that are doing cutting-edge work in these areas. And I'm aware that part of it is that I feel very passionate about using my gifts to um, 
have intimate conversations and draw people out and, and expose you know work that I think is really good and share it with the collective that that's a, that's a real passion I have and at the same time I'm aware of how uh, much it nurtures me personally to um, have these conversations with such high quality people and it feels really good to be you know doing both in a clean synergistic harmonious kind of way mm-hmm. yes absolutely and then the challenge for you of course is when you're physically with people that you don't have the intimate bonds with correct yeah, I mean, I pretty much organized my life to have that happen as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though uh, people might not think it because of um, their experience of me in the context of these podcasts or my patients or my students or people in my seminars might not think of me that way because in that context... I my energy can really fill the room. Uh, when I'm not in that mode, I'm actually a pretty introverted, private type of person. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, and that can be confusing to people when they first get to know me, if they're trying to pigeonhole me or put me in a box. But I've I've organized my life a lot to avoid sort of the general bureaucratic consciousness of of our society to avoid the prevailing uh, prejudicial energies of many human beings. So I've organized my life to avoid that to a large extent. And, you know, in some ways that has worked for me and in other ways it's probably limited me. But um, it's fascinating to look at all that from this lens. And I'm really uh, very engaged in this conversation. and, And, you know, I continue to be open to any input that you have. But um, one other thing I wanted to put on the table is any suggestions you have for this feeling that sort of is this blend of the four and the sexual subtype of very often when I am focusing on the collective in general, or I'm with a group of people that I don't, you know, particularly resonate with that much as individuals, having this experience of just like, being a stranger in a strange land and um you know how how can i be with that when that comes up in a way that um is healing yes it's it's interesting because really what the social teaches us to do and that's what you have to bring into focus is when in Rome do as the Romans do. So it's rather than the four need for individuality and to stand out and be special. In other words, the minute you're like others, you're not a unique individual anymore, which is the belief, the false belief actually, of the four and magnified by the sexual four. So the sexual four feels like they have to go against their feelings of being inadequate to prove their adequacy. So in a way, sexual sexual fours do amazing things because they will create what other people would find too overwhelming. But it's 
from that verve and that energy that comes from feeling like you're not enough and proving that you are enough. So when that feeling comes up, of course, intellectually, you can always say that you are enough, but the adrenaline's already in motion, so it doesn't work till after the fact. But what you can begin to do is sense the vibration because the sexual instinct is about the intensity and that vibrating kind of passionate energy. And on the high side, it's almost lyrical like a song. That's why I like your word choices that uh, resonate, you use, resonating. So it's using that stranger in the strange land to then sense the vibration of others and then match their vibration without thinking about what it is one way or another. It's like just getting into your body, which is always true for the four in general. When you feel at odds or awkward or strange or out of sync is when you're not connected to yourself and your body. So a very simple thing is just to feel your toes. And that will bring you in, and then you see options and possibilities. And you can use the high side of the sexual seven to be charming, and the high side of the sexual one, which is to really be able to meet someone in a significant way. But you're always going to struggle with stranger in the strange land. That's kind of the gift and dilemma you brought into this life, and it in a way, it's working with strategies of connecting to your soul and to yourself so that you recognize the fact that you are one, not because you intellectually told yourself, but because it's a felt sense that really is all three centers. So I think in the last session, we talked about if we can align all three types and that unifying principle with the, our instinctual stacking and align them, then they're not distorted. And then we feel the universal connectedness to everyone and everything. So getting there is very hard when the defense strategy tells you that you need to be an individual. So one way to look at it is that you are an individuated aspect of essence. And essence is the whole. But you are a unique aspect of the whole. So one and the same. And I find that that works generally to get the four, especially your tri-type, the one, four, seven in any order, really to get back into their alignment with their vision and what is possible in an ideal sense is to realign with almost the raw uh, ugliness of what is and seeing that everything is perfect as it is, and that we may not know in any given moment what purpose it serves, but it's recognizing that it's there, which the four can kind of forget about. 
before can think they need to be the doer of, of creating that special. Yeah, I was going to say, as you're talking, what I realize is my MO has been on one hand to allow people and allow things to be as they are. But on the other hand, if it's an energy that doesn't feel resonant with myself, my approach has been to extricate myself from those situations. Right. That's the natural instinct, isn't it? Right. right. Rather than try to establish rapport with those energies that feel so dissonant, my quote-unquote instinctual response is a withdrawal response. Mm -hmm. And um, that probably is useful a lot of the time, but maybe some of the time it's not the best. Well, most of the time it's not the best. It may be what's called for physically if you don't have the energy. And there are times certainly when you would need to do that. But overall, it would be that fear of being inadequate and then trying to make one special. And if you can't make yourself special, then leaving. So instead, it's making yourself one of, which is the challenge for four. It goes right against and up against the defense strategy of needing to stand out and be singular, but to realize you're a part of. So think about it. The four and having social last makes that extremely difficult for you to do. And really, one of your probably regular life lessons is to find the, the way to be in sync when you feel out of sync. Because for the sexual four, it's all about, am I in sync in a special way with the special person or idea that I have? And it's also the gender role, how to be the ideal, um, you know, sought after intellectual person that the four wants to be with a sense of aesthetics. So how have you managed those moments when you haven't gone away, when your impulse was to go away because you couldn't find a way to be extroverted enough or scintillating enough or more interesting than others? That's usually when it shows up for fours. There's, there's someone that's really extroverted and glib. and. But it's not so much that way for me. Okay, so how is it for you? For me, it's more when I'm in an environment where um, it's probably better to give you an anal uh, uh, an example. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, uh, sometimes uh, for various reasons, because I'm with somebody that's going there that is a friend of mine or something. Sometimes I'll go into, say, a, a, sh a store or a shop or a restaurant that is not a place I would normally go because the energy there doesn't resonate with me. You know, I might go into a Kmart or I might go into a McDonald's or I might <laughs> or I might go into a 
<laughs> Department of Motor Vehicle Building. <laughs> and these are, when I go into these places, I'm energetically very uncomfortable. And if possible, I will leave, even at the risk of offending the person I'm with. It's more important to me to leave. My, my reaction when I'm around energies that don't resonate with me, um, where I don't feel comfortable being, my reaction, my, my initial impulse is to get the hell out of there. And that's more how it shows up for me. And it's an uncomfortableness in my energy field and in my body and thoughts like, uh, oh, shit, I want to get out of here. It's more like it's more like that and feeling like um, like the same social waters that's giving rise to the Kmart and the McDonald's and the DMV you know, that these are manifestations of a social water that I don't want to have anything to do with. It's more like that for me. So would it be fair to say that it's more uh, common, it's less exclusive, it's um, structured in a way that everyone's ordinary that there no one is but given I don't, I don't, special I don't think of it like that at all oh, of course not no, I think, but what do you if you were to you say it you feel it physically yeah say more about that because that can be core energetics too yeah that's what it feels like it just feels like um, it feels like that more it feels much more visceral than than that kind of mentation you were talking about. It seems much more core and visceral to me than what you're than what you were talking about. Well, all the examples you gave really are several things together. They are all like um, structures that are not refined. They are not. Yeah. Um, and so thus the energy isn't as refined. So I wonder, do you feel the same way in a shopping mall where it's like a Macy's department store that you do in a Kmart? Not to the same degree. And then there are some stores that, you know, I think it has to do with this aesthetic refinement and, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, beyond any judgment or ego about it, it just, it just, it just doesn't resonate with me and my, and my impulse is to withdraw. And, and so the, the people that would, say, correlate with the type of people that would tend to uh, want to go to Kmart's and McDonald's a lot, those are people that I just um, find that um, I'm more comfortable if I'm not spending a lot of time with them, but I'm not like judging them like they shouldn't go to Kmart or they shouldn't go to McDonald's. It's not like, it's not like that. Mm -hmm. But what if the, the most exciting person you enjoyed wanted to go to Kmart? Would the mere fact that it was one of your significant pair bonds uh, 
or someone you had interesting conversations with make it so you could enjoy Kmart or would it still be difficult? It would still be difficult to enjoy Kmart. I probably would uh, focus on, with in terms of my relationship with that person, I'd probably focus on the other aspects of our relationship where I felt like we had more affinity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because generally the sexual subtype will go anywhere with their special few, and it really wouldn't matter where, because whether it's a grocery store, Kmart, or Neiman Marcus, it's that you're with the person that you have the most affinity with energetically. Now, it does put tension on the four period and especially your tri-type, because of the need for aesthetics. Really, the four is meant to really help the tribe give meaning to existence and to identify what is the most aesthetically pleasing. I love the example of looking at the Enneagram in terms of every type having a specific role. And if we think of the type one as initiating that first urge out and let's say it's to have uh, fruit trees and then planting that seed would be the type one, initiating even the need for the to plant a seed and then planting it. And then the two would be watering it and making sure that seed was nurtured along. And point three would be... Uh, the type that would say, okay, how can we mass produce the same set of conditions to have many trees? But it's the four that comes along and is this, the specialization where you say, wait a minute, we don't want to mass produce all of these. We want to pull out the trees that have the best tasting fruit and look the most appealing. And so the four is kind of like sorting for refinement, for not just a sense of the ideal, but the four does have the ability to discern. It's a level of discernment that goes beyond what's practical. And it, it's, a, it's a higher level. And we need the four for that. So I think what happens to a lot of fours when they're in an environment that is not aesthetically pleasing, where the, um, the energies are more stagnant. Now think of like a Kmart. Unless it's a brand new Kmart, it, it doesn't have the same level of maintenance that a Neiman Marcus does. So um, a store that's been remodeled and has all new fixtures and everything's in its place and things are hung in an artistic way that they are when a store is new or it's a high-end store, that is what makes a four relax. There's order in an aesthetically pleasing way. So the one wants the physical order, the four wants the aesthetically pleasing order, and the seven wants the unusual as well. So you have a particular tri-type that is contributing that and therefore stressed when it's not around you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
So you would be the person that would come along and want to create that, which is what the tribe needs. So you would be distressed by something that isn't providing that. And that's what is wrong with those environments. There's no individuality at the DMV. None. Right. And that is tedious for anybody. Most people would also complain about the DMV. But the four would really struggle with it because they're... There's nothing that supports that. You know, the word refinement really resonates with me strongly. It's like we could look at these conversations that make up these podcasts. We could look at them like refined conversations, you know, compared to many conversations in society. Or if we look at the type of healing work that I do where I am working with a lot of part of it is working with a lot of subtle energies there's a refinement to that so there's a that word refinement keeps coming up over and over and um, in the early part of my life I did a lot of work on releasing the judgment that I had around you know lack of refinement versus refinement and got to the point where I just preferred refinement so that's mm -hmm. kind of like where I am now but I feel like from talking to you today even though I can't quite put my finger on it I feel like there's another level of healing that I can go to with this that I'm not I can't quite define it yet but I have a sense of of some opening to some new possibility to extend that the arc of that healing mm-hmm well if you think about it as a in a way, a biological imperative. If we think of these instincts as inborn and essential to our survival, and that we all have all three, that goes without saying, but that the dominant instinct, in a way, is demanding that of us. But I also see it as a contribution that we make to our our groups, our, our uh, society, our, our tribe, our friends, wherever we are with others, it's what we bring. And if we can recognize that we're meant to track it and feel distress when it's not there, and instead of having the attitude of disappointment that others don't have it, and the healing may come from recognizing that's what you have to offer. And if you are in a group or situation where it's not needed, then maybe it isn't right for you. Not that you have judgment about it, but just an acceptance that one is you can see beauty in the chaos and the disorder, but also that you will put your efforts where it is wanted. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think about that famous Mark, Quain, Mark Twain quote. Uh, toward the end of his life, he said, uh, I finally learned to only go where I'm invited. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, allowing myself to be welcomed, to be appreciated, as opposed to expecting at a cellular level to be unseen, unappreciated, uh, considered to be a threat 
or rabble rouser rejected. Those are things I'm still working through. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And I think we work through those issues throughout our lives in, in in different paradigms and like spirals. We begin at one point, we expand out, we become more conscious of it. We kind of close that spiral and then the spiral moves and it starts a new one. And each time the spiral moves, we have an, another peeling of the onion, another way that we can understand it. And I know personally, working with people, helping them recognize how dominant these instincts are and that they are, you know, working 24-7. They never aren't paying attention to what we need. And they're always informing of it, us of what, doesn't feel right. And if we think of it, the instincts is having a lot to do with the hindbrain, the amygdala, and the, the part of us that is saying we must do something or we are in danger because when it happened last time, we did feel terrible pain and suffering. The difference is that as we bring it into consciousness and say, oh, there's that feeling, is this really truly dangerous or does it feel dangerous and I know that I I have shared with you the story about the difference between a snake and a twig bent in the shape of a snake well our brain will see anything in an S shape at a glance and think snake and that was part of our survival that's why it's a biological imperative but the instincts are that way from the standpoint that the instinct sees anything shaped like an S as a snake. And what we can do when we bring it into consciousness is say, is it truly a snake or does it look like a snake? I remember one time outside my office, there was a bent twig, a branch from a tree that was in the shape of an S and I recognized it was a branch but it was there for about a week before the street cleaners came and, and took it. And I could look out my window when I was working with clients and I'd see this. And every time I saw it, my hind brain would think snake. And yet I already knew from the day before and the day before and the day before that it was a twig. So finally, about the fourth day, I went over and said, what is it with the brain that I will constantly still see this as potentially a snake and you know when I picked up the um, branch I really could see that to survive our ancestors had to recognize something that was in the shape of a snake and that just because I was telling myself that it was a branch was not enough the energy was still going to rise, and then I'd tell myself again, oh, remember, that's just that branch. And that's what's happening when we don't realize it, and why it's so hard to work with this material. Because we are on guard, but the sooner that we can say, oh, right, I'm glad that it's not a snake, then the brain calms down again. And when we do that more and more and more, then it's not that the fear of snakes goes away. That would be foolhardy. I would be at risk of, of 
not being alert when there was in fact a snake. But becoming conscious that that is going to be a trigger and that my hindbrain is going to alert me and to honor the hindbrain and say, ah, okay, thanks for the notice. Let me see. No, that's not really a snake. So if it's a social situation that is aesthetically unpleasing, which would be the hardest for you with your type instinct and tri-type, that would be the most uncomfortable environment you could be in. You could then say, all right, am, am I in danger? It, will I survive? And you will. But you almost have to tell yourself because your very structure of your instincts in the order that you have them, the sexual, self-pres social, with the tri-type of the four, the one, and the seven, it's going to put you on red alert when you're in that type of environment. Yeah, this is fascinating. And, and I'm so grateful that you, you know, that you got into the arena with me here on my own personal journey. But I think it's uh, important for us all because I know so many people on the spiritual path that have really in their minds, they've opened up to spiritual principles and in their hearts, they've opened up to being more compassionate, but they still have had a tremendous challenging time beginning to confront the belly and the instincts. And, you know, uh, I personally think that, that that's the challenge of our time right now is to substantiate and anchor all the way down through the lower chakras and into the earth these new possibilities and 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 confronting the instinctual energies is is not for the week of you know not for the week it's uh it, it it's it's very challenging and to be able to have models and processes and people like you to work with to help to to integrate that i think it's so important because to me that's what makes the new spirituality new i mean instead of going up and out of your body to access these frequencies, now, to me, what's new about the new spirituality is, is, is connecting with these frequencies, but bringing them down all the way through the entire energy and chakra system and building a bridge all the way down through the first chakra and into the earth and vice versa so that the unity of existence includes the belly and includes the instincts and includes the physical and it's not easy work no no it's not is it <laughs> it's a it's a life path um one qu question that came to my mind that i thought the listeners might have because obviously i've done a lot of uh, you know inner work when you're dealing with people in, ca in counseling and coaching sessions and you're beginning to address this area of the instincts, but maybe people who haven't had as much practice as I've had studying my experience. How do you work with people? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you? 
like like when you like when you want to work with people to help them in this area with uh, gaining uh, transforming their relationship with their instincts in a way that their their life is working better for people that haven't done a lot of inner work to the point where they're, oh, they're, they're as consciously tracking their subjective experience as I am. How do you work with people? Well, interestingly enough, the instincts are really easy because with someone that is new to this work and being able to track their internal processes, they do know what causes them to feel suffering, what causes anxiety, what causes distress. So it's in some ways very easy to help them recognize that these are primal needs that are threatened and just help them identify those needs. Now I do it through an inquiry process where we get around whatever positive identification the person has. I help them see how quickly if they don't meet that idealized image, they feel distress and anxiety. And then I tag it to a life experience that they can find, preferably younger, when they felt that distress. And then we give, I give them uh, feedback as to what was age appropriate. And then they can say, oh, all right, if that was normal for a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old, then we're very forgiving of ourselves when we're overly anxious as an adult. And when they can recognize that their sense of reality changes to a more current understanding, they shift so quickly that they begin to track it very readily. In fact, I'm always surprised at how quickly people who know very little about the Enneagram and maybe don't even know anything about the instincts can get this concept because they feel it and they know so vividly when they feel ill at ease. All of us do. Mm. And when they recognize that this inner alarm bell is valid and alerting them to something that could be wrong but might not be wrong and a way to check it out, it can be transformational in that very first time they recognize that because they expect themselves to stop the alarm. And really what I'm saying is recognize that the alarm is just letting you know it could be a problem and to check out and see if it's truly life-threatening or, or not. And so it's a, it works so quickly that they don't have to have the ability to understand their personal processes at the level you and I do because they do know that alarm bell. We all feel it. That's great. So uh, for people that um, have been really turned on by these two conversations, other than re-listening to these, which I think is a good idea, if people want to learn more about the Enneagram and the instincts from the point of view of how we're talking about it now and how you see it and how you work with it. Um, what are some of the best resources you would suggest? And go ahead and share those and make sure that 
you give any appropriate contact information so that people can take some action if they want to. Oh, okay. Um, the best way to get a hold of me is info at katherinefavor.com. K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-F-A-U-V-R-E.com. And I do actually have a book that I published on my first research on the instincts, and it's called Enneagram Instinctual Subtypes. You can get that at uh, Enneagram.net, which is another site that I have material on. And I also have information at both websites, katherinefavor.com and enneagram.net, on these three instincts. I have a page of each instinct to give you an idea of what these three instincts are like and an article that I wrote years ago. And there are... There hasn't been as much written about the instincts. It's more woven into some of the other Enneagram books. There's a little bit in Wisdom of the Enneagram uh, by Riso and Hudson. There's um, a little bit in The Enneagram by Helen Palmer. And many of the new books do reference aspects of the instincts. But the the only book just on the instincts is, is the one that I have. It's a field that is coming more into uh, focus because it is so primal and fundamental. Great. Um, Well, let me turn it over to you to close us out here. Is there anything at all that you'd like to say in closing, either to complete this for yourself or to contribute further to the listener? Let me just turn it over to you to say whatever you'd like to say, and then we'll say goodbye. Okay. I would just say very quickly that to recognize that with the instincts, it's the fear of estrangement. And if you feel that you'll be a burden to others and you don't have enough resources, you're probably self-prez. If you have a fear of being cast out and you're focusing on others, it's probably social. And if you have a fear of being undesirable and not having the intimacy that you want, it's probably sexual. And that when these are balanced, you will feel the ability to handle any given situation in a, in a more responsive manner rather than overreacting. So, Catherine, I really, really appreciate the time that we've had here together, both personally for myself and, uh, and on behalf of the listeners. And uh, I just wanted to turn it over to you to say anything that you would like to say in closing. Yes, and in closing, what I would say is that if you have uh, a fear of anxiety and suspense and not surviving and that you'll be a burden, that you're probably self-prez if you don't feel you have enough resources, and that if the overall feeling is of loneliness and not belonging and that you feel you could be cast out and you're tracking others, that's probably social, and that if you are constantly tracking your sense of appeal or how connected you are to others or the way in which you feel personally invalidated and whether or not you have the intimates that you want, it's probably sexual. And that when you bring all three of these into awareness that you will feel the most whole and complete and make the best decisions. 
Okay, Catherine, thank you so much. So, ladies and gentlemen, we've been uh, speaking with Catherine Favre about the instincts, particularly in relation to the Enneagram and to Tritype today. And uh, it was quite an experience today for me to <clears throat> lay it all out on the line and bear my soul and be the guinea pig, but it was, I think, really a great experience for me, and I'm sure everybody will get a lot out of it. So on that note, we'll close until next time. We'll say goodbye and we'll close with love and peace. Dr. David here again. I hope you enjoyed part two of that interview with Catherine Farver on the Enneagram and transformation and its particular application to working with human instincts. I know I was really engaged. You could probably tell I was uh, kind of on the hot seat there. I put myself there as a guinea pig, and I felt like Catherine and I were in a really good flow, and it was really, really real, and the value of Catherine's work and the value of the Internet, excuse me, the value of, uh, of the Enneagram was really, really present. So I hope you enjoyed that. I encourage you to follow up with the resources Catherine has available. And uh, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.